This evening we're going to come back and see Jacob once again in our passage, and I expect that all of us probably resonate with Jacob here in Genesis a, a little bit more than we like to admit. There, there's times where we see Jacob have strokes of brilliant faith, and, and we want to resonate with him then. Hopefully, we do. Other times, though, we see Jacob have this great flash of being a scoundrel. Sadly, we probably resonate with that a little bit, too, if we're honest with ourselves. Other times, Jacob comes across as a helpless victim, there, and there are times I, we like to think of ourselves a little bit like that. Sometimes Jacob is the one scheming. Likely we've all laid awake at night trying to figure out how can we get ourselves out of some jam through some scheme that we can come up with. Then at times, Jacob simply seems like he's there. He's caught up and the world is just spinning around him and, and all he can do is go along for the ride. And surely there's times where we feel that way as well. The one thing we can certainly say about Jacob, as we see here him in Genesis, is Jacob is very human. While this evening his human frailty is going to display itself again. Our goal, hopefully we understand, is not just to relate to Jacob, but we need to learn from him. Tonight, Jacob, you may recall, is on his way home. After 20 years, he's heading back to the promised land. He was a refuge in the with his uncle Laban for 20 years and trying to hide from the, the murderous intent of his brother Esau, but now he's heading home, returning Canaan. During those 20 years, Jacob married Rachel and Leah and, and had 11 sons and a daughter thrown in there, children from Rachel and Leah, as well as the, the maids who turned in surrogate wives, um, Bilhah and Zilpah. Jacob's accumulated great wealth. He, he now possesses flocks and herds and servants. Outwardly, when you think about it, Jacob is a very different man from, from when he left Canaan 20 years ago. Inwardly, as we've watched, there's been some transformation as well. As Jacob fled 20 years earlier, you may remember that God himself revealed himself directly to Jacob as he left the promised land. And from that experience, Jacob became a true worshiper of God. There, there's been flashes of recognition that, that God has been with Jacob, fulfilling the promises that God made to Jacob at, at various times during those 20 years. Of course, there's also been times where Jacob's faith has waned, and, and he's depended, again, more on his wits than he's depended on God. He's returning to Canaan a changed man. The, the question is, how much of a changed man? Chapter 32 is a key chapter in the life of Jacob. It's a key chapter for the nation of Israel to be able to understand God's commitment to them as a people. I've decided that we'll split the chapter into two sermons to give us time to fully develop all the key elements that, that we have here. Tonight we're just going to tackle the first 21 verses and we'll divide these 21 verses into four sections. As we've done most of the series, we'll work our way through the text and then we'll extract an overall principle once we understand what's in the text. So we'll just jump in. The, the first section to consider this evening is made up of verses 1 and 2. In the first two verses, we have the recognition of, of God's presence. Genesis chapter 32, hopefully you're there. Moses starts out, Now as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw them, This is God's camp. So he named the place Mahanaim. 
The previous chapter ended, if you recall, with Laban departing, as I mentioned, to head home. Well, verse 1 connects us to that. Now, as Jacob went on his way. So, remember, Jacob was pursued by Laban. Laban caught up. There was their, their conflict last time, and then Laban left at the end. Well, Jacob goes the other way. Jacob's on his way, heading back to Canaan. Then suddenly we're told with extreme brevity that the angels of God met, met him. Literally, the expression is the messengers of God met him. Now, now the word messengers is, is the normal word that the Old Testament uses for angels. And that's what we do have here. They're, you know, I'm not saying this is not angels, but I want us to understand this term is the messengers because it'll be important in a moment. The, the only other place, actually, in the Old Testament that's of, of, of interest that we have this exact phrase. We have the, the word messengers used for angels lots of times, but the phrase messengers of God, the only time we have that phrase is Genesis 28, 12. What happened in Genesis 28? Does anyone remember? What? Nope, not quite. A little bit further ahead. Genesis 28, that is that time that I mentioned as Jacob was leaving the land when he was met by God at, at Bethel. And, and he saw what we call Jacob's ladder, the messengers of God going up and down the stairs, and then he heard from God. So Moses is connecting this event tonight with that event. As Jacob left the, the land, he saw the messengers of God. As he returns, he sees the messengers of God. He saw these angels both times. One commentator that I read thought that these two sightings may indicate that the promised land was guarded as border by angels. I, I suppose that's possible, but that, that seems a little bit of a stretch to draw from just two references of these two sightings. Um, but in Genesis 28, that dream that Jacob had that indicated, if you remember, we've gone back to that dream a few times, it indicated that God was interacting with 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 earth in a special way there at Bethel, and that was where God promised Jacob he would be with him. Well, now Jacob's returned to a place, and, and it's a new place, another place where God's chosen to interact with his creation in a special way. It is this land of promise, and the message that should resonate with Jacob is that God is still with him because he's here where God is, is really physically interacting with, with the earth. And I largely draw this conclusion for Jacob from how he names the place in verse 2. He recognizes that, he's that as he's approached the promised land here, that he's also approached God's encampment. A place, one commentator called it the, the, the base of operations for God's angels. Most likely this glimpse assured Jacob that, that God's divine protection was accompanying him as he re-entered the land. The, the same presence of God that went with him and, and watched over him for 20 years is still there as he comes back. Well, if you think about it, Jacob had a very good reason to have concern as he returned to Canaan. Last he knew, his brother wanted him dead. For all he knows, 20 years has made his brother even more bitter he, he has no idea what's happened with Esau over these 20 years. Esau may have had a horrible life and blamed all on, on Jacob for stealing his blessing. Esau could have spent 20 years fantasizing how he would kill his brother when he finally got hold of him. Jacob really doesn't know what he's going to walk into when he, he meets Esau. But now as he's getting close, 
he's shown this camp of God's angels. This is a place where God is actively engaged in the happenings of mankind. As we said, he names the place Mahanaim, and that the word simply means two camps. Most likely, Jacob's recognizing that here in this place, there's two groups camped. There's his group, his family, and, and all their stuff, but there's another group. There's God's angels. There's mess God's messengers, his angels. And, and we're ways from getting there, but I want to plant the thought with you that you can hold on, that Moses is quite careful to wrap the text that we're looking at this, this evening with the idea that Jacob is in this place. This word, this is God's camp. That's a key idea tonight. That's Jacob's observation in verse 2 and verse 21 ends with the idea that Jacob spent the night in the camp. So everything we're looking at this evening happens in this place that is God's camp. God shown his messengers, his angels to Jacob. Jacob knows he and his family are not alone. He knows God is protecting him. Well, hold on to that idea as we press on. So we begin with this recognition of God's presence. And we immediately then move into the fearful response to Esau's approach. Verse 3. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore he is coming to meet you with four hundred men, and four hundred men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, If Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. At first pass, it doesn't seem too hard to understand what's going on here. Jacob figures that, as I said, after 20 years being apart, it might be a good idea to give his brother a heads up that he's coming home. So he sends some emissaries ahead of the large group to, to go in and greet Esau. The, the return that we read about here from the meet and greet comes with the word that Esau's on his way with 400 men. Well, that sounds like the realization of Jacob's greatest fears, doesn't it? 400 men are coming. Certainly, after all, Jacob would have known his family history a little bit. He, he would have remembered that Abraham only needed 318 men back in Genesis 14 to defeat four kings and all their armies. 318 against four kings and all the armies was enough for Abram. Now here comes his brother with 400. Here's Esau coming with more men, and, and all Jacob has is his family and servants. Verse 7 records, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Clearly his initial assumption, Esau is coming to kill and destroy. And he's frantic. So he decides he'll divide his family, his servants and flocks and herds into two groups. He figures by, by separating into two groups, Esau will have to make a choice which group he's going to attack. As soon as Esau attacks one, the other can flee and, and have a good chance of escape. He figures it's better to lose half of his family than all of his family. So we can understand that much through just a, a surface reading of these verses. But, but there's more lurking here than, than that. 
You, you may have already guessed it. The, the word messengers in verses 3 and 6, that's the same word as was used for the angels in, in verse 1. The messengers of God in verse 1. In verse 3 is messengers again. In verse 6 is messengers. Similarly, the word that we have translated in the New American Standard as company in verse 7, when he divides into two companies, that, that's the, the same word as translated camp in verse 2. Moses is making good use of wordplay here. Clearly, the, this vision that Jacob had in the first two verses, that influences his, his actions in the second section here. He, he repeats the ideas of having messengers go forth and then splitting into two camps. Well, let's look still closer. Zoom in on verse 4. Uh, observe there the, the words that he uses. He, he calls Esau Lord. He refers to himself as servant. Now keep your finger there and flip back to chapter 27, verse 29. Chapter 27, verse 29, this is the blessing that Jacob receives by, by deception from his father. Verse 29, portion of the blessing from Isaac says, May peoples serve you, this is to Jacob, and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers, and may your mother's son bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you. When, when Jacob tricked Isaac into giving him the blessing, part of that blessing was a, a, a prediction, a prophecy that, that Esau would bow down to Jacob. It was a prophetic blessing. It was coming from God. That makes it divine revelation. Part of what made Esau so angry was that it was clear that, that he had been placed in an inferior position to Jacob. That was part of the, the, the angst that that drove Esau to anger back, or to, to jealousy and rage and desire to kill back in chapter 27. Now, as Jacob is about to meet Esau for the first time, Jacob intentionally inverts the order that was given in the blessing. It's as if, as if he's attempting to step away from the blessing. But stepping away from the blessing is the same as resisting God's plan. Remember, Isaac spoke under God's guidance. This was God's revelation. For Jacob to step away from it is to step away from God, what God has said. Now at this point, we, at least in theory, most of us probably know how the story ends, but, but just reading, we're in the same predicament as Jacob. Moses has not informed us to Esau's intent. We only know that Esau is coming with 400 men, yet, yet I would hope we immediately sense that this recognition of great fear and distress is inconsistent with the vision that Jacob's given in the first two verses of angelic protection. He's in the camp of God. And he's fearful. Moses seems to expect that, that we'll go beyond just recognizing this inconsistency to actually seeing there is an element of, of sinful faithlessness involved as Jacob divides his family unit into two camps. It's not just inconsistent behavior in front of God's revelation. It's, it's sinfulness. Think back to chapter 30. We, we mentioned chapter 30 several times last week. Chapter 30 is, is a quick record of God fulfilling the promises of blessing. He blessed him with, with children. He blessed him with financial prosperity. 
We have the, the record of the birth of his sons in a, a manner that clearly marks the birth as a partial fulfillment of, of God's promises. The record of prosperity was also given to us in a way that showed God is fulfilling his promise of blessing. Both Jacob's family and his stuff, as I'll just summarize, you know, all that, prosper, all that physical prosperity stuff of, of flocks and servants and so forth, all of his stuff, along with his family, all of that is evidence of God's blessing as part of God being faithful to God's promises. They show that God is a faithful God. So how now is Jacob responding to God's faithfulness? Well, he shows a willingness to sacrifice half of what God has given to him if necessary. In fact, when we get to the next chapter, it's painfully clear which groups Jacob is most willing to sacrifice as, as he leads out with the maids and their children, and, and then they're followed by Leah and, and her children, and then his favored Rachel with Joseph is in the most protected rear position. What we have here is rather than trusting God for protection, Jacob immediately responds to an assumption of, of danger by trying to preserve that which he values most. Fortunately, our text does not end with Jacob's fearful response to Esau's approach. In the next four verses, we find a, a glorious promise-based plea for deliverance. A promise-based plea for deliverance. Have you ever done everything you can think of at the moment and then turned to prayer? Well, Jacob's doing that here. Having done everything he can think of at the moment, Jacob turns to prayer, picking up in verse 9. Jacob says, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, notice his capital, Yahweh, covenant name of God, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I'm unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed the Jordan. Now I've become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother and from the, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with their children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered." Look at this prayer. It's a glorious prayer. Jacob begins by addressing God with, with a reference to the previous generations of promise, Abraham and Isaac. He, he reminds God that his current situation is a result of obedience to God's command to return. God, you said, I'm to return, I am. He, he assumes the, the right attitude for prayer by, by confessing his unworthiness to receive anything from God. God never had to make covenant promises with Jacob. But at the same time, Jacob recognizes that God is loyal to his covenant. He re references God's covenant loyalty as hesed. We have it translated as loving kindness in verse 10. This, this faithfulness of God to his covenant. Jacob acknowledges that everything that he has, his family and his possessions, these are all the display of God's faithfulness to the promises that God made to bless him. He left with only staff, and now God has given him all of this. Most significantly, Jacob also refers to himself as God's servant. Of course, as one commentator pointed out, if Jacob is God's servant, then he really has no need to become Esau's servant. Still, positioning himself as God's servant, that, that's the right attitude. 
Jacob is recognizing all the right things in his prayer. He, he builds his prayer upon the, the promises that, that God has given. And, and based on the grand recognition of who God is and, and what God has done and what God has promised to do, Jacob finally gives a straightforward plea for deliverance. He says, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother. Jacob knows that God can deliver him. He admits his fear of Esau. He acknowledges that he fears Esau will attack him and his family. But he also knows the promises that God has given, the promises that, that should produce confidence that God will deliver him because Jacob calls on God for divine protection as he remembers that God has said, I will make your descendants like the, the sand of the sea. This really is a great plea for deliverance. It is built on the right foundation. It's straightforward in asking God to do what God can do. The, the one quibble that I have with Jacob's prayer is what's not in it. There is one area of loud silence if, if we look at the prayer and think about it. Nowhere does Jacob acknowledge that he's in this predicament because of his own sinful actions. He knew God had promised that he would be the, the heir, but he schemed to get the blessing. Now he's fearful that Esau's come and kill him because Jacob wronged Esau. He lied to his father to steal the blessing. God had promised that, that as I said, the covenant promises would pass to Jacob, but Jacob manipulated to, to gain them quicker and soon and, and on his schedule through deceptive means. Yet we, we don't find an ounce of confession anywhere within this prayer. He wants deliverance. He, he's willing to humble himself to the status of servant of God. Yet Jacob seems as if he's unwilling to humble himself to the status of a contrite confessor before God. He, he doesn't confess his, his own wrongful actions that, that brought him to this point. Nor might I add, does Jacob appear to entertain the possibility anywhere in his thinking that, that Esau might not want to kill him. Even though 30 years have passed, Jacob assumes Esau is still angry and does not ever consider that his assumption could be flawed. I'm just curious, does, does any of this sound remotely familiar to you in your own lives? I admit that it sounds way too familiar to me that I go to prayer as last resort, I don't confess the, the sin that I ought to be confessing, and, and then I um, beg God to get me out of the problems I've got myself into. Uh, it sounds a little familiar in the way I tend to handle situations sometimes. Still, it, it's a good prayer for deliverance. A plea-based prayer for deliverance, or a, a, a promise-based plea for deliverance. Frankly, I, I wish our text would end at this point. We could probably give Jacob a bit of leeway on the lack of confession. I mean, after all, maybe he confessed 20 years ago or after he, he left Bethel and Moses didn't record it for us. We don't know. It was silent. So we could maybe give him a little leeway there if the text did not move on. But the text does move on. And it moves on to appeasement planning in God's presence. That's what I'm calling verses 13 through 21. Appeasement planning in God's presence. Let, let's read the final section for tonight. So he, that's Jacob, spent the night there. Where's there? Just make sure we're, huh? Yeah, Mahanim, God's camp. He, he spent the night there in God's, the, in God's camp. This is God's camp. That's where he's at. So he spent the night there. 
Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He delivered them into the hand of his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, Pass on before me and put a space between droves. He commanded the one in front, saying, When my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going, and to whom do these animals in front of you belong, then you shall say, These belong to your servant Jacob. This is a present sent to my lord Esau. And behold, he also is behind us. Then he commanded also the second and third, and all those who followed the drove, saying, After this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him while he himself spent that night in the camp. Again, what was the camp? What was the camp he's in? He spent the night in the camp. God's camp. I want us to get that. He spent the night in God's camp. The camp where he's seen the angels of God, the, the place that was named Mahanim. Jacob has pleaded with God for deliverance. And he's in the place where God is actively involved with his creation. God's active involvement is, is evident. Angels are right there. Jacob should be brimming with confidence. Instead, we see Jacob fall back into his normal pattern. He makes elaborate plans to save himself and his family. As we read these verses, we should remember how, how Jacob devised his, his crazy system to try and breed animals in such a way that, that the offspring would be his. Rather than, than trusting God to prosper him, Jacob tried to exercise some level of control over the outcome. Oh, that same type of behavior again. Rather than fully trust God to deliver him, just as he pleaded, Jacob comes up with an elaborate plan to save himself, or at least save part of his family, in the face of a threat that he perceives. He assumes Esau is coming to attack him, so he decides that he will try to appease Esau with a gift. And rather than confront Esau with the two camps they split into, now he divides into smaller groups and he places a portion of a gift in each group. That the gift is these 550 animals. That, that really is a large gift by any measure. Yeah. But it's also problematic. Because as we already discussed, this gift, these 550 animals, that is giving away some of what God has given Jacob as a fulfillment of God's promise to Jacob. He's taken what God has given him and he's handing it away. Furthermore, we see again in verse 18 that Jacob is willing to place himself under Esau rather than assuming the leadership of the family as God has indicated that Jacob will. He is to be the one over the family. Like we saw in verses 4 and 5, Jacob again refers to himself as servant and Esau's Lord, inverting God's order of things. Of course, we, we know from Jacob's words in verse 20 that his goal in all these efforts is appeasement. He's very clear about that. Jacob does not necessarily intend to take a subservient role to Esau. He, he, he recognizes he's supposed to be the, the leader, I'm sure, but, but he wants to appease his brother. His purpose is to pacify. 
One commentator expressed it that he's trying to buy off his brother, who, who remember, he's convinced is coming in anger. Jacob, the habitual schemer that we've seen him be over and over again, he's trying to come up with a scheme that will allow him to escape what he sees as a tight spot. Appeasement planning, that, that's what Jacob's doing. But again, let's not lose sight of the fact that he's doing all of this in God's presence. Moses is working hard through repetition to ensure that, that we do not forget this most important point. Jacob knows he is in God's camp. He's prayed for deliverance. He has the promises of God to stand on. Yet he cannot help himself but try and devise a way out of the dilemma that he thinks he's in. Appeasement planning in God's presence. That's what we see happening here in the last section of the text that, that I want us to look at this evening. His situation's not resolved, but, but I think it'll work best if we hold off what comes next until next week so that, that we can see how God deals with this problem that Jacob has inwardly. So what can we learn from what we've seen this week? As I've said at the outset, I at least resonate with Jacob more than I wish I did. That's especially true as I see Jacob make assumptions and then try to devise a solution to the problem he has assumed he has, throw in a, a little dusting of asking God to help, and then go back to business of devising a, a solution to the problem. That sequence sounds far too familiar to me, and my guess is I'm not alone. That is probably familiar to many of us. As I think just about the verses we looked at this evening, I think the lesson that, that we can learn is one that we probably wish we did not have to learn. We take longer learning to trust God rather than our own wits than we should. That's the way I word the lesson. Let me read that again. We take longer learning to trust God rather than our own wits than we should. How many examples in your own life can, can you think of when, when you prayed to God to, for help, but that's been, as I said, the second or third thing that you tried rather than the first. You encounter a challenge of some kind and you try to fix it through your own efforts rather than immediately asking God to help. For, for that matter, how many examples in your own life can, can you think of when you've assumed that you have some sort of a problem without really knowing that's the case? You just make the assumption, there. this is going to end bad. I know it will. We're good at making assumptions. Usually our assumptions think the worst of others. How often have you later discovered that the situation that you laid up all night worrying about was not even real? You, you assumed a problem that did not exist. Or, thinking about Jacob a little bit further... Can you think of examples when you realize that you have asked God for help without stepping further back and confessing your actions that led to the need of help in the first place? Quite often, the problems that we're dealing with result from our own earlier actions. We blunder our way into a lot of our complications in life. For that matter, we sin our way into a lot of the complications we have in life. Yet our present our preference is <coughs> to simply move forward, to deal with problems and, and beg God to help without ever confessing our own sinfulness that got us there. Lastly, how many times have you asked God for help with the situation 
then found yourself still laying awake all night trying to figure out, how can I fix this? Busting your wits, trying to come up with some way to wiggle out the problem that you just prayed God take over. If you're like me, all of these scenarios are far too familiar. Also, I know that none of these scenarios should sound familiar. I know that God wants me to ask for his help first. I know that I should not make assumptions about problems, but should wait to see which problems God brings into my life and deal with them when they're placed there by God. I certainly know that I should confess my sins to God, all my sins, including those that lead to my own problems. I know I should never worry about the problems that I have. Worry is sin. I know I should rest secure in God's control of my circumstances, knowing that God will take care of things. I know these things. I know that, but that doesn't mean that I follow biblical principles to resolve the problems that come into my life. I know the Bible says this on one side. I even have experience with the Bible over here, but that doesn't mean that's the way I operate. It doesn't mean that I don't worry about devising solutions through my own wits and thoughts and efforts. I know all these things, yet far too often, I don't do what I know I should do. I am just like Jacob. And based on the simple fact that God inspired Moses to to record these verses for us so that we can know and learn from Jacob's failures several thousand years ago, you're the same way. God put this here because we all need this. We all need to learn this frustrating lesson. We take longer learning to trust God rather than our own wits than we should. Let that sink in. We take longer than we should. Let's praise God for his patience, his long-suffering, his endurance for us. We'll see more of that next week as God continues to work in, in a guy who should know better. But learning this lesson will help to get us ready to learn more. One, it will help us show patience to one another who we see struggling in this area. How many times do you get frustrated with someone because your first thought is they should know better? Yeah, so should I. So if we learn this lesson, that it takes longer for us to learn trust God than, than, than our own wits, than, than it should, we should be willing to give grace to someone else who's displaying the same issue. They've taken them longer than it ought as well because all they're revealing is they're just like us. So learning this lesson should help us show patience to one another when we struggle in this area. And then number two, learning this lesson should also cause us to constantly examine ourselves, to look for ways where we are slipping back into our old habits rather than trusting God. We don't learn if we just allow ourselves to keep repeating our own failures. Yes, we all can look back at times where we've allowed worry to have victory in our lives. But we're not progressing if we say, well, that's just the way I am. No, that's the way I was, but God wants me different. We need to learn that, that we cannot trust, we ought not trust, we should not trust, we are not to trust our own wits. We're to trust God. So we should constantly be examining ourselves, look for ways. Where are we slipping back? Where are we showing that we have not learned what we ought to learn yet? That, that we're taking longer than we should? Where is that in our life? And then let's attack it. 
so that by God's grace, we can make progress forward to be more like the way we ought to be. We take longer learning to trust God rather than our own wits than we should. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your word tonight. I thank you for the, the raw openness of your word where we see the failures of others and you intend for us to learn from their failures, to avoid some of the pitfalls that they've had and to work our way out of our own pitfalls faster because we can learn from their lessons. Father, this evening, tonight, we've looked at one of those kinds of passages where we are to learn from the failures of others. Father, you may not show us the angels around us, but we know that we can trust you because you have revealed this to others. We know that you are controlling all the circumstances of our lives. We are to simply walk through life trusting that you are working your purposes and that your purposes are good. So, Father, I pray that you would help all of us to learn and grow tonight as we ought, knowing that ultimately you have solved our deepest problem through the sacrifice of your Son and that we are asking our God to help us because we pray in his name. Amen.